Okay, so three passages. And the first one is going to be Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Now remember, we're looking at three different passages from three different books, but they all describe the same event. So just follow along. It will be just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together they describe the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but they have their own angle, right? They look at it from different places so that we can see all the different multifaceted beauty and there's this woven tapestry at the end. We get a full orb view of the life of Christ. Well, the Old Testament is the same way. Sometimes different writers talk about the same event and give different vantage points so that we can see the, the, most, uh, the beauty arising out of all of it. So this is Ezra writing, and this is when the foundation of the temple was laid. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. That's Ezra. Now, let's jump over to Haggai, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This is what the prophet said to them on that day. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. That was their leader who was building this. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehazazak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And then one more tiny verse tucked away. Zechariah, same event, different perspective. This is what the prophet Zechariah said. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. So, uh, let, me, let me open this sermon by telling you a little story. And if you've heard it before, I apologize, bear with me, okay? I think it's relevant to today to kind of help you understand where I wanna, how I want to approach this message. When I completed seminary back in 2011... The church that I had left behind that encouraged me and supported me to go to seminary, they were very gracious and they invited me back and hired me back. Because when I left, 2007, 2008, the bottom collapsed on the economy. And, uh, you know, it was, it was hard to get hired as a pastor, to be honest with you. And that church was very gracious to me. They took pity on me and they invited me back. And I was thrilled. I couldn't be more thrilled. Now, keep in mind, uh, seminary was very hard for me. I've told you the, the heartache, right? For almost... Five years, I studied rigorously, okay? And I was probably the dumbest kid at the school, just being honest, keeping it real, okay? Um, I was challenged theologically when I was there. I was challenged mentally. And I didn't know it at the time. I was challenged physically. It was exhausting. 
You can ask my wife. I had to stay up late. I would study three hours for a Hebrew vocab test when other students could do it in 10 minutes and, and make 100%. I just, I wasn't the brightest knife in the drawer when it came to language classes, okay? It wasn't my forte. So it was hard. It was exhausting work, but by God's grace and my, my wife's amazing support, I graduated in just about five years. Other guys, it took about three years. That's okay. Hey, we all have our own pace, right? I had a family. I had a wife. I had a full-time job, and uh, I, I took the snail trail approach. So after that, I was ready to change the world. I seriously was. I had both cannons loaded, man. I was ready to go out and make, I was ready to start a revolution theologically. Turn me loose, Lord. Turn me loose. I had a, a master of divinity degree. That's a master's degree, man. I mean, that represented something tremendous for me. And I was ready to be unleashed on the world. And so God did turn me loose as a PE teacher for elementary students back at the church that I went to. Now, now you're laughing, but just, just bear with me, Aaron. You, where's Aaron at? Yeah, I talk, we talked about this before. Um, so I taught PE to, to snotty-nosed kids for a couple years. And, and in the afternoon, I would teach logic to middle schoolers. And then late in the afternoon, I would go uh, into an office that a real pastor had, and he was my roommate, and I had like a little cubicle in the corner there, and I would uh, develop Sunday school curriculum, and I would edit the... Uh, the newsletter for the church that went out every Monday. That was my life. Every day looked pretty much the same, seriously. Every Monday I would get up early. I would uh, referee kickball games and dodgeball out in the wet grass. The dew was on and my feet would be soaking wet. And then the sun would come out and I would get this splitting sun headache. And I would be sunburned on my ears and on my neck. And then I would go in and teach these 7th and 8th graders. Now this was after lunch. Okay, seventh and eighth graders after lunch. Yeah, you're with me. I see the teachers out there. They had just eaten lunch. They had this heavy starch in their stomach. All they wanted was a big fat nap. And nothing that I probably said about logic was interesting or revolutionary to them. And then, like I said, after that, I went to an office. And at the end of the day, I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing, man? <laughs> what am I doing? I got an MDiv degree. This is not what I signed up for. I want a revolution here. I'm ready to change the world. Um, so... I was disappointed. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing that. Maybe uh, your life, your ministry, your family, your parenting, your friendships, your relationships, your marriage, maybe it's lackluster. Maybe it's unremarkable. Maybe it's somewhat disappointing, right? Um, well, mine was. I thought it was a small life. I thought it was a small ministry, a small service, a small office, and small paycheck, to be honest with you, right? But the church was gracious. I was happy to have some form of income. Now, at the same time, I'm hearing all these glory stories from the guys that I graduated with, right? From seminary. They're candidating out there, and they're landing these amazing jobs that I'm hearing about, seeing about on social media. Uh, Big-name churches serving under big-name pastors in big cities. Big, big, big. They got the corner office down the hall, right? <laughs> uh, they have their own counseling ministry. They get the to teach a 500-member Sunday school class on Sunday morning. They get regular preaching opportunities. Um, they had their own parsonage by the sea. You know, they had all this stuff that I didn't have. And I'll just be honest with you. I looked at their life and looked at their opportunities. And, and, and then I looked at mine, and I'm refereeing dodgeball in the wet grass in the morning, right? Seriously, I'm sunburned. I got a headache. I'm having parent-teacher conferences with middle school parents uh, asking me why their students are failing when I know they don't take notes in class, they're not even awake in class, uh, they don't do their homework that I assign, that I send home, 
They don't study for the test that I send a review home for you, the parent. They don't do any of those things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in that kind of thing. And I want to I just facepalm and say, what the heck am I doing here? Because, see, I couldn't see how God, who had called me and my family 3,000 miles across the country to Southern California for five years to eat ramen noodles and live in a dingy little apartment and, and, and hardly be able to make ends meet and spend $30,000 on a master's of divinity degree at the master's university. I couldn't, I couldn't understand uh, how this could be his will for my life. I thought I missed it. I thought, well, this is it. Small, unremarkable, lackluster. This is my lot. And so I began to compare my small achievements and efforts to those of my seminary peers. And you know, there's the, the comparison curse will kill you, right? It'll either puff you up with pride or it will wreck you in despair and, and self-pity. And that's what was happening to me. Uh, and at the same time, we had our fourth kid. So on the home front, I'm already tired, I'm already exhausted, and then we're changing diapers all the time, and we're not getting very much sleep, and we're accumulating debt, and you know, all these things are adding up. It's like the perfect storm of despair for us, because I wanted to serve God in a certain way, and I wanted to change the world. Uh, I didn't want this, so resentment was starting to set in a little bit, and bitterness. I was starting to despise my small life, and my small ministry, maybe Maybe some of you have been there before, or maybe you're headed there, or maybe you're there right now. But that was me at the time. Um, and I can't remember exactly when, but along, within a six-month period there, something radically changed me. <laughs> and it was a sermon that I had read by Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers. He's gone on to be with the Lord, and he lived in England um, and was an amazing pastor. And the context of the sermon he was preaching, it was on revival. He talked about how we all pray for revival, we long for revival, we wait for revival, and we should because that's when God's Holy Spirit comes down and works in a remarkable and visible way uh, and does corporately what he often does individually and just restores people, refreshes people, renews people, saves people. And Lloyd-Jones was saying how churches that have experienced revival sometimes have a really hard time a few decades later because life returns to normal and there's nothing as remarkable as revival anymore in their midst. They don't, they don't see revival. They see small things and they begin to resent them and they begin to despise them. And then he quoted, it was just an offhand passing comment he made. He quoted a verse from Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10. We read it earlier and he said, but do not despise the day of small things. And man, the power of the Word of God, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? That verse, just when he, he quoted it and I was reading the sermon that he preached, and that verse hit me in the head like a ton of bricks because it, that was exactly, I mean, the Word of God is so powerful and so relevant to our lives. Isn't it astonishingly and remarkably, remarkably relevant to us? I was doing the same thing that those people were doing that we read about. I was despising something that I thought was very small, very small. And God corrected my thinking and he granted me repentance. And listen, I began to view my ministry to those kids as not small anymore, but amazing, radical. <laughs> uh, because listen, with God, little is much if he is in it. And in fact, years later, some of those kids, you know what they remember? They don't remember the, the sermons that I taught them in chapel. They don't remember the sermons I was able to preach every now and then at the big church that I served in. You know what they remember? The talks that we had in the classroom, the passing conversations in the hall, me praying for them, me, me chasing a rabbit of a dumb theological question in class and, and being able to highlight the gospel, that's what they remember. They don't remember Pastor Tommy, you know what they remember? Coach Tommy. 
That's it. In fact, one of my students was our worship leader uh, before he moved to Georgia. It was Zach. Zach, I was always Coach Tommy. I remember Zach, when he was this high, he and I established a relationship through my role as his PE teacher, his coach, and then eventually as his pastor. So what in the world does any of that have to do with the passages we read? Well, check this out. So that was a very special day for the children of Israel because they were rebuilding Solomon's temple. Now, I don't need to tell you if you know anything about the history of the Bible. Solomon was an amazing king, and he built an amazing temple, okay? Solomon's temple was radical, over-the-top, precious stones, gold, jewels. All the country heard about it and wanted to come and view it. But because Israel disobeyed, uh, the Babylonians came in, and what did they do to that temple? They burned it to the ground, they took all the gold, they plundered it, and they took it back to Babylon, and they took all the Israelites with them and held them there in exile and captivity. In fact, they destroyed pretty much the whole city of Jerusalem. It was razed to the ground. Um, Eventually, God's people acknowledged their sin. They repented, and so God was gracious to them and sent them back. He deported them back to their home city, but it was in shambles. So what did they do? They built an altar. They got that established. And then they began to work on this temple, okay? And it was slow, painstaking, uh, hard work. It got interrupted, It got threatened, there was opposition from within, there was opposition from without, sort of like the book of Nehemiah, if you read that, when they build the wall later. It took 20 years for them to get this temple completed. So the story we just read was the very first stage in the building project. Now, if any of you are in building, or if any of you have ever built a home, you know it's hard to watch, because there's so many little bitty steps, and it's hard to get excited about it. You're like, what, this is it? You just hung the sheetrock, I'm ready to move in. Well, listen, this was... The rebuilding of Solomon's glorious temple, and they finished the foundation. And everyone that was there was celebrating, okay? Because this, this is a pretty big deal. The foundation's done. Now they can start to erect the structure itself. But not everyone that was there was happy. Some of the people that were there were really sad. In fact, they were weeping openly. And do you know why? Do you know which people it was that were sad? It was the ones that were alive when Solomon's temple um, was still you know, was still erected. They remembered the former glory and splendor. That word is kabod. It means heaviness, weightiness. It means glory in Hebrew. There were some that were there witnessing this little bitty small accomplishment, and they remembered what the temple used to look like. And so they were despising that day. They were sad. It was lackluster. It was unremarkable. It was ordinary. It was nothing to celebrate or write home about. And so they didn't. Um, And that's what this is about. And so... It was anticlimactic, small, really small and underwhelming. So you can imagine they're, going, they're, they're coming out of captivity. Their lives are wrecked. They're going back to a wrecked city. Many of them are. They're building this little bitty tiny temple, and they know life's never going to be the same for them. And I think if we're honest, the reaction that those people had is sometimes the reaction that we have to the opportunities that God places before us. You know, that little bitty small foundation um, was just a visible symbol that they didn't think God was ever going to use them again. It's, it's, we look back to the glory days or we begin to compare ourselves with others and we think, who am I? What am I? I'm nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I had this little job. I had this little life. I had this little family. Other people are out there getting radical, you know. <laughs> they're, they're changing the world. They're, they're, they're opening soup kitchens and they're going to third world countries and they're adopting 10 people from wherever, Bangladesh, Uh, I'm not able to do that. I feel trapped. I feel like my life is so limited, so small, so ordinary. 
And how in the world could God ever use me? And you begin to despise your life and your opportunities. Now, I, know, I have met so many people like that in Christian ministry, and I can understand because I was one of them when I came back from seminary. God had to really humble me and show me, look, small, God values small things. God uses small things. God celebrates small things. So just a couple of points today, okay? Not a clever outline or anything like that. Just a couple of points. Number one, God understands our sadness. God understands our sadness. He, he knows how we feel about those opportunities. He knows that we despise them. He knows that so often we look at opportunities like they did, things we should celebrate and praise God for, and yet it's a letdown. Whether it's your family, your ministry, your job, your vocation, whether it's your salary, it's just a letdown. And you begin to compare yourselves to others and you're just really sad and grief-stricken about it. I was talking to somebody the other day uh, about the, uh, the Mega Millions jackpot. Now, now, don't be judging me, okay? I'm just, I'm just being real. I was told that it reached a million dollars on Friday night. A, bi- a billion. See, I was just testing you. You listen to this stuff too, and I, I just got to be honest. I began to think, man, now hang on a minute. I'm not, I'm not a regular lottery ticket buyer, but, but dang, you know, I'm a pastor, and, and, I, and, I, and I pastor a church. I could think of some, some things I could do with that money, and I was having lunch with, with Mark Hart. You're in here, and, uh, and we had lunch last week, and I was telling him, I said, man, I could, I could do a lot of good with that money, and he said, you could never spend all that money, even if you tried, and I said, oh, yes, I could, and he said, no, you couldn't. He said, do you realize, and at the time, it was only, this was earlier in the week, it was at 300, I think it was at 500 million and if you win it and you want to cash out and just take the money and run, you can get $300 million. So $300 million, that's not a billion, but that's a lot of money. And he said, you could never spend all of that. I said, you're crazy. I could spend all of that, man. Just on books, I could spend it all, you know? And he said, no, you couldn't. He said, do you know? He said, what's the first thing you would do? I said, I'd buy a new van. We need a new van. We have more kids than we have seatbelts. Don't tell anybody. It's illegal. We have to like... Anyway, that's another sermon for another time. Double buckle, anybody? So... Uh, he said, you buy a new van? He said, you could buy a new van with the interest on that $300 million in the first day. Mark Hart blew my mind that day. He blew, and he said, get your calculator out. Because he's in money and banking and all that. And it blew my mind. And I'm thinking, oh my word. Do you know just the interest, one year, just a modest daily interest rate from $300 million in one year, you know what it would be? Three million bucks, guys. Three million bucks. Now you're saying, why in the world are you telling us this, Pastor? Because I started a dream. And you know what? This church takes very good care of me. Praise God, I don't have to be bivocational. That means two jobs. I have one job, one focus. Even though our church is small, you take very good care of me. So don't take this the wrong way. But I I began to think, man, you know, I could really use more money. And I could do a lot of stuff. And my mind started racing. And I began to, you began to really, like, but my life and my paycheck, meh. What could I do? There's the millionaires out there. They're really world-changing, history-shaping. They're able to put all this money into charity. And seriously, I just my mind started to go down that trail, and it, it's a curse, you know. But God understands our sadness. He knows that. You say, how do you know that? Well, well check this part of the verse out on your, if you want to turn your bulletin over. Um, and Haggai, he says this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You know, that's God talking. Now, if you, if you weren't careful and, and a, a careful student of the Bible, it almost sounds like God is mocking them, doesn't it? Doesn't it? God's saying, hey, how many of you here remember Solomon's temple? 
Raise your hand. And they're like, yeah, we do. He said, wasn't it awesome? And this is nothing. This is nothing. Solomon's temple, heavy, kabod, glory, weighty, amazing, over the top, fireworks. And this, meh, nothing to tweet about, nothing to put a Facebook post up, nothing to write home about. This is nothing, isn't it? You say, yeah, God's mocking them. No, he's not. God is engaging them at the deepest point of their pain and hurt. See, he does that with us. But here's here's the rub. God wants them to be honest. God wants them to confess, own up to it. You don't think this is anything, do you? Just like many of us may wrestle with that with our life and our marriage and our kids and our vocation and our ministry and our church or whatever it is. Opportunities to do evangelism, our neighborhood, our house. It's, it's non-ending, our health. Um, God says, you got to be honest. You don't think this is nothing, do you? But look what he says right after that. In fact, here, I'll, I'll bring it back so we can see it. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's saying, admit it, admit it. You think this is junk, don't you? You think that I'm holding out on you and that things are never going to be like they were. But check out this promise. See, if you're not honest with God, you never get to the good part. If you don't say, yeah, it stinks being a PE teacher. I got a Master of Divinity degree, and I'm around snotty-nosed elementary kids and middle schoolers who could care less. Yeah, this is nothing to my eyes, God. So what? Well, then the promise comes. When honesty comes and transparency comes, then God's promises gush in, right? And he says, yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozazak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. You know what he's telling them? Look, this is not a moment of weakness. He's talking to the king of the, of the Judean territory. He's talking to the priest. He's talking to the people. This is like an all-inclusive, comprehensive promise. He says, be strong, don't be weak, declares the Lord. Work, work, for I am with you. It's so easy to pass by that, isn't it? Do you hear how right? This is a radical promise. God is saying, you don't think this is anything but you have forgotten something. I'm with you in this. This thing that you think is so unremarkable, lackluster, let down. What if I told you and reminded you I'm with you in this though? Would that elevate it from ordinary to radical? Would that make it worth your while to engage these elementary students? What if that is the most remarkable opportunity you'll ever be given to change the world? It's like Mother Teresa once said. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your children. She was talking to moms. All these moms that were leaving their families, and I know I don't usually quote Mother Teresa. I think I actually did last week. That's two in a row, isn't it? Anyway, um, people back in the day, they were leaving their families to go join a monastery or a nun, a nunnery. Is that what you call it? Anyway, she was saying, look, if you want to change the world, go home and love your children. It's like one person said, everybody wants a revolution. Nobody wants to do the dishes. Right? Isn't that true? Yeah, guys, be honest. Let's be honest, church. We all want a revolution. We all want to be remarkable and amazing. But who wants to teach PE in wet grass? <laughs> right? Aaron, I'm not picking on you, dude. Aaron's like, I do. Hey, I do too now. I want, I want to be back there with those kids if I wasn't up here. But anyway, work for I am with you declares, and then look at this, the Lord of hosts. Who is this that is with us? Oh, this is the God who spun the galaxies into existence, who's making the rings around Saturn work, He's with you, little bitty insignificant you. That God notices you. He infuses you with power. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to do the work through you. Man, is that enough for you to get over the little foundation? Get over it. Get over yourself. 
Get over the curse of comparison. It's going to take you down a dark path that you may never come back from. The Lord of hosts is with you. So work. Get busy. There's work to be done. There's people to impact. And look, when I see this church, when I see Grace Life Church, I was telling my wife this, I see an army. I see an army of evangelists. I see a whole bunch of insiders that can be there for the outsiders, ready to be mobilized. And if you're viewing the small, unremarkable, lackluster opportunities God gave you, if you're despising them, that's never going to happen. That's why this sermon, this passage, hopefully, prayerfully, will help us embrace the mission field that God has given us. Yeah, you've got your job. You don't have anybody else's job. You've got the one God gave you. And maybe it's small in your eyes and unremarkable, but look, if God is in it, small is big, right? That's the truth. It is. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. He says, I'm not going anywhere. Remember my covenant with you? It's unconditional. It's one way. I'm never leaving. My spirit will remain with you, therefore fear not. Because that's what people do. They live in regret land. They start entertaining all these regrets. What if? What if? What if I would have just stayed single and gone to Africa? Man, I could have changed the world. Maybe, maybe you could have, but guess what? Uh, what if you stayed here, married that person that you married, had the kids that you had, and had to quote-unquote settle for this career? Are there not people in your sphere of influence that you can radically impact for Jesus? Yes, there are, and don't despise those opportunities. That's what God's calling us to and telling us and reminding us. So that's, the, that's point number one. Um, because listen, so, so often, and social media never helps with this, we're always comparing and contrasting uh, you know, our lives with somebody else's that seems to be more remarkable and seems to be more radical. Um, we use the, the same visible, noisy, spectacular measuring rods that the, our culture does so often, and God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. Michael Horton said this, For many of us, the worst word in our vocabulary is ordinary. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be an ordinary person in an ordinary town, a member of an ordinary church with ordinary friends and callings? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, a legacy, make a difference, and this has to be something that we can manage, measure, and maintain. We have to live up to our own Facebook profile. He's combating this stubborn voice that so often even comes from the church that's telling us you got to do more, you got to go big or go home. And that's okay in some cases, but listen, um, sometimes God wants us to invest in stamina. He wants us to marvel at mundane things. He wants us to celebrate the unremarkable faithfulness of the lives that he's given us, right? Not everybody can go to the mission field, guys. If everybody went, who's holding the rope? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes people are able to take radical risk because some of us don't, <laughs> you know? Some of us are like, you know what? I'm going to faithfully, financially uh, provide for the needs of this church so that other people can take radical risk and go. I'm going to stay. I'm going to hold the rope. Do you remember years ago we went through the Gospel of Mark? And Mark chapter 5 is this crazy story about a demoniac. He's crazy. He's naked. He's bloody. He's filled with demons. He's running around in the graveyard screaming at people. And Halloween's coming up. I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm thinking of it. Anyway... Um, so Jesus encounters this guy and he heals him, right? He cast out all the demons. 
And what do you think this guy wants to do? You, you remember the story, the whole townspeople were freaking out because this guy that nobody could control, nobody could chain him, he was wild maniac, nobody could control him, and then he met Jesus. And behold, he was seated at the feet of Christ, clothed and in his right mind. And everybody's freaking out. And you remember the question he asked Jesus? He said, I want to go with you. Get me out of here. <laughs> right? Everybody else in that story would ask Jesus a question and he would, he would give them what they wanted. The demon said, uh, please don't destroy us. Let us go into the swine. And he said, okay, go ahead. And they jumped off the cliff. They did a swine dive, you know, and died. They became deviled him. So the townspeople begged Jesus to go away. And he said, okay, I'll go away. And he did. But this kid... <laughs> The demoniac begged Jesus to go with him. It's the same word in Greek, to entreat, to beg, to implore. And the only person Jesus said no to in this entire story was the demoniac. <laughs> I mean, the whole story of the gospel, Jesus had been telling people, follow me, uh, you know, put, put your other life behind you, follow me, drop everything. And the one guy who says, I want to follow you, I want to go with you, and Jesus says no. Remember what he said? He said, I want you to go home. And tell your friends and your family what wonderful things the Lord has done for you, how he has shown compassion, compassion to you. Well, dang, that doesn't sound like much fun, right? If you've just been healed of demons and you've got this crazy life back home. Uh, but sometimes the most radical thing that Jesus tells us to do is stay put. That's my point. Stay put. Stay in your job. Stay in your marriage. Stay in your house. Stay in your neighborhood. It's easy to start over. It's easy to get crazy. And, you know, push the reset button and make a whole new list of friends and move to this town and move to this neighborhood. And listen, our culture is like exciting those things and sometimes Christians buy into it. The harder thing to do is to stay put sometimes. Sometimes just long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson put it, the guy that wrote the message version of the Bible. Long obedience in the same direction. Faithful, steadfast, not a sprint but a stamina, a marathon, sometimes that's the most radical, remarkable thing that the world sits up and takes notice of. People that are really making an impact, making a difference, they live lives of faithfulness that are really remarkable when you compare them to just how crazy and, and noisy and unstable and unsettled the lives of so many Christians are. Is that making sense? I hope it is. I hope this is encouraging you. A woman named Tish Warren wrote a provocative post a few years ago, and it was titled, Courage in the Ordinary. Uh, in her 20s, she was part of a Christian movement that promoted radical, world-changing lifestyles. She did mission work in Africa. She organized protests against abortion and whatnot on college campuses. Um, and she participated in all these radical Christian communities. Then she got married, and she became a young mother. And she struggled to fit her image of an authentic, devotional life uh, into where she was and what she was doing. And this is what she wrote. This is pretty, pretty neat. I've come to the point where I'm just not sure anymore what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so that is what I need now, the courage to face an ordinary day, the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life and that the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me and that is enough. Now look, don't walk away from here saying, well, our pastor was calling us to lukewarmness, laziness, mediocrity. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you, don't use the same measuring stick for what a radical life looks like that the world is using, the culture is using, and some people honestly in the church are using. Because 
sometimes a quiet, peaceable life <laughs> uh, is something we should aspire to. Seems like I've read that somewhere before, haven't you? First Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, let me read that to you. Uh, First Thessalonians 4, Paul said this, We urge you, brothers, to love more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. The NIV actually translates that this way. It says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Now, I'll just be honest. Would some of you, if that wasn't in the Bible, and you heard somebody, another Christian say, hey, look, I just really want to encourage you today, live a quiet and peaceable life. Would you think, man, that just really, that smells like compromise to me. I don't know, pastor. That just sounds kind of blah. I don't really know if that's, would God even acknowledge that? Would God recognize that? Is that something to celebrate? Is that something to tell your congregation they should aspire to? Well, it's in the Bible, isn't it? I think it is remarkable. How, how, how often do you see that? Somebody that's just quiet, faithful. Maybe they're not engaged in a world-changing revolution in a third world country or have a soup kitchen or uh, doing homeless ministry. Maybe they're playing Uno with their kids and teaching osmosis to middle school students. I don't know. And they're loving their neighbor. <laughs> Maybe they're paying their taxes. They're tithing at church. Maybe they've never missed an opportunity to share the gospel with another teacher. Um, and the people that take radical risks stand on their backs. That could be a possibility, right? Scripture holds that out. But a lot of people would view that as a compromise, and I think that's getting it backwards. I know that many people today have a view of what it looks like to really uh, serve God, and it's a mountain-moving, culture-shaping, charge-the-heel warrior for Christ. And if that's what motivates you, that's awesome. That motivates me. I want to do that too. Um, but God gives different people different gifts and different callings, and there's room in the church for all of that. And I want there to be room in church, in this church, for all of that too. There's a place for that kind of ambition, uh, and it's not wrong. Neither of those are wrong. In Romans chapter 16, um, since we're talking about ordinary, if you read some of Paul's epistles in the New Testament, and at the end, sometimes he says, oh yeah, tell Phoebe I said hello, tell... Uh, Cletus, I said hello. He, he mentions all these Greek names. And it's really astonishing that God chose to, you know, if, if, if God had a refrigerator and he put pictures all over it and had magnets up there, some of the most unremarkable, ordinary-looking Christians would be on his refrigerator, the, the names that get mentioned. He mentions things in Romans 16. Uh, there's two people's names. They sound like twin sisters. There's a lady, he says, she's your mother and she's my mother. He mentions single moms. It's really amazing. God values ordinary people. He doesn't mention any apostles in there or third world missionaries. It's just normal people like you and me that's moving the, the gospel work of the church forward in the world. Unremarkable, ordinary Christians. There's a place for that. Um, God values small things, and, and you can see that in the Bible. Look at the parable of the mustard seed. It's the smallest seed in Israel at that time. And Jesus used it to tell a parable about how the kingdom of God works. It starts out really small, right? And it grows and it begins to influence and, and, and shape uh, and impact and change. And before you know it, it's the biggest tree in Israel, or one of the biggest trees. The most influential spreads out and has a lot of shade. There's other stories about a boy's lunch. You remember that? Something small, something insignificant, a little boy willing to share his lunch. Um, lots of things like that. The widow's might. Jesus was actually standing one day in the temple where people were giving their, 
giving their offerings, and a lot of people were giving large amounts, but the widow uh, just gave a couple of mites, right? Which is a very small amount financially, and that's the one that Jesus noticed and mentioned. And then maybe one of the smallest things, and you may not think of it this way, but do you know when the Son of God came into the world, when God became a human being and crawled inside human flesh, do you know how unremarkable it was, the way it happened? You know where it happened? It happened in a barn, in a stable, in a corner of the world, uh, in an insignificant little town. And you know who the people who were there and witnessed it? Shepherds, dirty, bottom of the rung. <laughs> Did you know that? You remember that? Angels were singing and there were some shepherds there. And that was it. The most spectacular event that ever happened in the world happened very quietly in a, in a corner of the world and not very many people were there. And I think our lives can be the same way for Christ if you look at it that way. And I think we should. That's, uh, that's important because that's God making a statement. We want the sensational. We want the dramatic. Um, that's how we measure things. I was reading the other day. You know, Steve Jobs died almost seven years ago to the day. And... Uh, I don't have to tell you who Steve Jobs is. The fact that everyone in this room knows who he is tells you the kind of impact he had, right? He's probably invaded everybody's lives in this room with either a phone, an iPad, he's in your car, he, he's, he's on your desktop at home, he's in your kitchen, he's at your job. Uh, iTunes, all of those things, uh, the seed germ of those were in his mind and he impacts all of us here. Well, he died nearly seven years ago this month. He lived the life that by secular standards is legendary. Generations to come will be directly influenced by the, uh, by the products that he brought into reality. And he died one of the world's richest men. Without a doubt, he impacted and changed the world. But as is the case with so many rulers and leaders and innovators uh, and shapers of history, Christians have a lot to learn from Steve Jobs, but we also must observe what is missing. This, listen to what Al Mohler, one of my favorite writers, he wrote this. He said, Steve Jobs has invaded my life, my house, my office, my car, and my desktop, and I am thankful for all of his technologies. But we know what the world does not, that the Christian mother tending her child, the farmer planting his crops, the father protecting his family, the couple faithfully living out their marital vows, the factory worker laboring to support his family, and the preacher preparing to preach the word of God are all doing far more important work. Now that sounds like we're slapping Steve Jobs around. We're not. Steve Jobs was a Buddhist. He was not a Christian. He did not embrace the Christian worldview by any stretch. Um, and the Bible teaches us, you know, this is a paraphrase, but only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Jesus will last. So the faithful Christians that are investing, uh, the exhausted single mom, that it's all she can do to get out of bed and get her kids dressed in the morning to get them to daycare, the exhausted single dad that stays up late, feeding his kids, getting them to daycare in the morning. Um, and I could go on and on. When you're serving Jesus in those rows, Steve Jobs ain't got nothing on you, honestly. You, you are serving a much more noble cause and a noble purpose in the world. That's what Al Mohler was talking about. You can consider Eunice and Lois. That's Timothy. You remember Timothy, Paul's protege? That's his mother and his grandmother. They weren't signing books or filling up stadiums with a conference talk, but you know what? They impacted that young man and he was able to impact as an apostolic apprentice um, generations and generations from that. I remember, I remember being at a conference when I was in my, either my late 20s or my early 30s, and it was about Jonathan Edwards. And there was a Q&A time, and a guy that was there, he was a scholar of Jonathan Edwards, and he was all things Jonathan Edwards, you know. 
And somebody was asking him, how do you think Jonathan Edwards uh, trained his mind to think theologically and devoted so much time to Scripture so he was able to impact the world? Uh, And this preacher looked at him and he said, well, I'll tell you this, young man. He didn't watch cartoons on Saturday morning, did he? And it was kind of a, I don't know, it just just hit me wrong. Maybe because because I watched cartoons on Saturday morning growing up, right? And listen, I'm thinking, um, okay, I'm I'm no Jonathan Edwards, but does God want everybody to be Jonathan Edwards? You know, I watched Scooby-Doo on Saturday. <laughs> Listen to all these confessions coming at you. So, so what if I watched Scooby-Doo growing up? You know what? Maybe I'm able to relate to a lot of other people my age that watched Scooby-Doo growing up on Saturday mornings in a way that Jonathan Edwards couldn't. I, I think so often we, we shortchange people that have tremendous opportunities and that are uniquely wired uh, to impact a certain group of people that others aren't. I think that's true. I think it's true in, in your life as well as mine. Well, I'm winding down here. I want to tell you one other thing that helped me um, when I graduated from seminary and was really despising my opportunities. It was a morning devotional by Charles Spurgeon. Anybody ever read Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon? You can get those free in a million different formats on the internet, and they're really amazing. He's a great preacher and a great writer. But he wrote, he wrote a devotion on this verse, tucked away in First Chronicles. Listen to this verse. It was a list of all these names in the tribe of Judah, And then it listed three men's names at the end, and it said, These were potters, and those that dwelt among plants and hedges. There they dwelt with the king for his work. And then Spurgeon said this in his devotion, if you can see up there. He said, Potters were not the very highest grade of workers, but the king needed potters, and therefore they were in royal service. The text tells us of those who dwelt among plants and hedges, having rough rustic hedging and ditching work to do. They may have desired to live in the city amid its life, society, and refinement, but they kept their appointed places, for they also were doing the king's work. These potters and gardeners had royal company, for they dwelt with the king there. Ye unknown workers who are occupied for your Lord amid the dirt and wretchedness of the lowest of the low, be of good cheer. Dwell ye with the king for his work, and when he writes his chronicles, your name shall be recorded. Don't you love that? You may do an, be doing unremarkable work in unremarkable places amongst unremarkable people. It may not be anything to tweet home about. Or even if you took all of your life and put it into one Facebook post, nobody would like it, look at it, or share it. But you know what? If you're working with the king, you're in royal company, and you are in your appointed place, and, and this message and these texts are an encouragement to keep it there and to not grow weary while doing good. The Bible says this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And man, that hits home for me because did you know that 90% of the churches in America, 90% are below 200 people in attendance? 90%. And the average, did you know the average number of people who attend a church on a Sunday morning worship in America, you know how many it is? 80. That's the average number of attendance. And yet, do you know what I get in my inbox every day? Just because I'm a pastor and I buy books and I put my email out there, you know what I get in my inbox every day? All these, this will make your church grow bigger. This will make, and some of those are legit, okay? But it's always making me despise. The temptation, if I listen to all those voices whispering and doing this, is to make me despise these opportunities that God has given me to shepherd you and to want something bigger, to want something better, and to forsake this. And I'm not going to do that. By God's grace, I'm not, because this is amazing. This is incredible. I feel like God has given me the privilege of all privileges to be the pastor of this church. And of course I want us to grow. Don't you? I want every seat in this place filled up. 
And I want the gospel to just resound and thunder throughout this place and for us to, to be the insiders for the outsiders and see all of Volusia County come to Christ. Um, but maybe God's going to do that through another church or maybe we're going to, I don't know. That's God's prerogative. That's God's prerogative. That's what I'm saying. So I got one last thing that I want to share here. The final, this is the final point. So how is it, I don't know if you noticed in that text, but God through the prophet was telling those people that were at the rebuilding of the temple, he's saying, you who despi- whoever is despising the day of small things, you will rejoice. He says, whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice. And you, you scratch your head and you're like, wait a minute. If I were God, I would be rebuking them, right? You're like, what? What? Really? You sinned against me? You deserve for this city to be destroyed. You deserve for this temple to be wrecked. You deserve to be exiled for 70 years. In fact, you deserve to be judged and, and, and executed. But I spared your life. I had mercy on you. And now I'm bringing you back. I'm rebuilding this city, the wall, the altar, the temple. And you're going to despise it. But instead of judgment, do you know what God has? A promise for them. He says, you will one day rejoice. One day, the, the days will come when the glory of God will fill this place. And the, and the latter glory, he says, will be greater than the former glory. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the gospel. And how can that be? Because listen, there, there is another person who came who was despised. He was despised. His life looked unremarkable and looked very ordinary. Nothing to write home about. In fact, did you know there's a scripture, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus? I want to read it to you, okay? Now, just keep this in mind as you're looking at your own life, small, unremarkable, radically ordinary opportunities, and you're tempted to despise them. Check this out. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's talking about Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this is marvelous doing in our eyes, the Bible says. Listen, this is, this is the greatest news in the world, um, that you could come and have a relationship with God. You can be reconciled to him, you could be restored, you could be cleansed, you can be forgiven, you could find freedom from your sins. From the tyranny, the curse of comparison, you can just have simple faith and look to Christ and Christ alone, and you can be reconciled to your maker. And then you know what? Christ promises to walk through you with what you may think a small and unremarkable and ordinarily uh, small and, and, and pitiful life. He promises to walk through you with that, and you are in royal company, and he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and your small life will be significant. That's the promise of the gospel. Let's pray together.